Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. start something new uh, this morning at CCM Fallowfield, a new preaching series uh, looking at a book of the Bible which you may often hear quoted or mentioned, but which I think a lot of us probably don't know a lot about. And I think, to be honest, I was one of those people before I started planning this preaching series. I've learned so much about this book of the Bible just by studying it and planning this this sermon. Um, But I want to ask you a question first, and that is this. Just ponder this for a second. What's the most difficult job you can imagine doing? Just what is the most difficult thing you can imagine doing as a job? Now, I don't know what will come up for you, uh, and I don't know what would come up for me either, but I wonder, what about this? How about preaching a message of judgment to a nation of rebellious, morally bankrupt people, knowing that they would not listen to a word you said? (laughs) Pretty difficult job. That was the job of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a profound and challenging and fascinating and quite weird and complicated book of the Bible. And uh, it's also very, very long. Okay? And for that reason, we are not going to look at the whole thing in this preaching series. We're going to look at chapters 1 to 39, and we're going to look at selected excerpts from those chapters. But to boil down Isaiah's message in a nutshell, Isaiah, a book of the Old Testament, a prophetic book, Isaiah tells the leaders of Israel and Judah that their rebellion against God comes at a cost. God's judgment, he says, is coming. But amidst God's judgment, there will be hope. God is not going to completely destroy his people. But their rebellion has come at a cost. And in the 21st century, about 2,700 years on from when Isaiah was actually writing this book, the book leads us as God's people, as the church in the 21st century, to take God's judgment seriously, actually but simultaneously to walk in the hope of God's promises. We get a lot about Isaiah. We learn a lot about what's going on in this book from the first verse of the whole thing. So let me read that to you. Isaiah 1.1 says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In that verse alone, we get a little bit of the what, where, who, and when of Isaiah. In terms of what, what is going on in this book, what's it about? Well, Isaiah says it's a vision. This is God showing Isaiah what is going to happen in the future. This happens a lot in the Bible, not only in the books that are called the prophets in the Old Testament, but also in, uh, for example, the second half of the book of Daniel. And at the opposite end of the Bible, the book of Revelation where God gives a person a vision to share with others, a vision of what will happen in the future. That's the what of Isaiah. The where, where is this occurring? Well, Isaiah tells us exactly where this is occurring, in a city called Jerusalem, the capital at that time of a province called Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. A little bit more on that in a moment. That's the where of Isaiah. Who? Who's speaking? Well, Isaiah is a prophetic advisor to the kings of Judah. And Isaiah is kind of advising the kings throughout the reigns of four different kings, okay? We're given their names in Isaiah 1.1, Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. But most of the chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah that we're going to look at is Isaiah speaking to two of those kings, whose names are Ahaz and Hezekiah. Those two kings are very, very different, and we'll see why in a moment. But there's the who. Isaiah 
primarily to Ahaz and Hezekiah, and more broadly to the people of Judah and Israel. And as for when, well, because Isaiah helpfully gives us the names of the kings that were ruling, we can date this roughly to when Isaiah is writing, and it's somewhere in the 700s BC. You can find the historical version of the story in 2 Kings chapters 16 to 18, also in the Old Testament. And Isaiah is a book is unique for a number of different reasons, okay? One of the reasons is its literary style, okay? In Isaiah, you get poetry, you get metaphor, you get uh, narrative, you get history, and of course, you get prophecy, visions of the future. It's also unique in its incredible number of references to somebody who's going to come called the Messiah, God's chosen one, through whom God is going to redeem and restore the world, Isaiah mentions that coming person more than anybody else in the Old Testament, making him the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. And another reason that Isaiah is unique is because of the incredible ability of this book to hold two contrasting themes in tension with one another, to hold them both up, to emphasise them both, judgment and hope. Now, I want to devote this sermon this morning to giving you a little bit of context about Isaiah, to letting you know what's actually going on as Isaiah is writing these, these chapters, chapters 1 to 39 of the book. And uh, in order to do that, I want to give you a little bit of insight into the spiritual context of Isaiah and the political context of Isaiah. So what's going on that causes all of this to happen and what's going on during the time Isaiah is writing? And we want to start by thinking about this idea of judgment that's key to Isaiah. And we need to understand the spiritual context of Isaiah if we're going to get anything out of the sermons that we're going to to hear over the next few weeks, in fact, the next couple of months. We need to understand the spiritual context of this book. Because God says through Isaiah that he's going to punish the nations of Israel and Judah for their rebellion against him. He says this in verses 2 to 4, right at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. The people of Israel and Judah have rebelled against God. We get a little bit of insight into what that means. But throughout the book of Isaiah, God gives us some insight into how that affects him, how this affects God. Here, God uh, doesn't only find himself as a God without any devoted worshippers because people have turned against him. But God is described as a father whose children have abandoned him. And God is described later on in Isaiah as a husband whose wife has been unfaithful to him. Actually, this is something that deeply upsets and angers God. Israel is described as rebellious, guilty, evil, and corrupt, and that's just in Isaiah chapter 1. As a result, Isaiah says, they are offering sacrifices to God in kind of the ritual worship that the people of Israel carried out, but their their sacrifices are empty because they don't actually want to worship God. Their rulers, it says, are corrupt and don't care about the poor, seeking their own wealth instead. They are idolaters who worship gods that they've kind of adopted from the local pagan nations They're building statues and bowing down to those statues and offering sacrifices to those statues instead of worshipping God. There's even references in Two Kings, which I said tells the historical story of what's going on, to child sacrifice and things like that, following pagan practices which don't fit in with what God has wanted for these people. In other words, 
things have got really bad. And Isaiah prophesies that God is going to bring judgment upon the people of Israel and Judah. Isaiah prophesies that God is going to use two military superpowers to bring about that judgment. The first is called Assyria, and the second is called Babylon. Both of those nations did attack Israel and Judah. Isaiah prophesies that this is how God is going to punish the rebellion of his people, that rebellion comes at a cost. And like most Old Testament prophets, however, Isaiah doesn't just say this is what's going to happen. He does say, look, there is a way that you can stop this from happening. He tells Jerusalem's leaders that if they repent and turn towards God, and if they lead the people of Israel and Judah to turn towards God and repent, then their sin will be washed away. He says this in Isaiah 1, verses 16 to 20. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, just a brief aside before we get back to Isaiah. If you are a follower of Jesus today, if you believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again for you, then your sins have been washed white as snow. Remember that as we move forward. But God forewarns Isaiah in this context that though he will preach this message which says that God's judgment is coming and though he will say that the people need to repent and turn to God, that the people won't listen. God forewarns Isaiah of this and says that actually Isaiah's message is going to harden the people's hearts further against God. And Isaiah prophesies that what is about to happen will purify Israel like a consuming fire. The thing about fire, as you'll know if you've been at the evening service recently, is that it hurts. There hasn't been a fire at the evening service, just to be clear. Uh, there's, been, there's been a preaching series about fire. That was misleading. Um, the thing about fire is that it hurts. And Israel and Judah are about to discover that. There's the spiritual context. Israel and Judah have rebelled against God. And God takes that seriously and cannot let that go unpunished. But we need to understand a little bit, if we're going to understand what Isaiah is talking about and the names that Isaiah drops and the the place names that Isaiah drops and the context, we need to understand a bit about the political context of Isaiah as well. By political context, I actually mean kind of the military movements that happen in the time of Isaiah, the various nations that attack one another, because this was happening all the time. Now, to give you a bit of insight into this, Israel and Judah are no longer a military superpower. Slightly earlier in the Old Testament, Israel and Judah was united as one kingdom called Israel. They were united under King David. They were united under King Solomon. Under those kings, they achieved lots of military victories and expanded their land. But this is no longer the case. They are no longer a single kingdom. They have been divided. This happened shortly after the reign of Solomon. We're a couple of hundred years later now... And Judah, where we set our scene, the southern kingdom of Israel, finds itself a small fish in a big pond with some very big fish nearby. I preached a couple of weeks ago on the the story of Jericho, a story really early in the Bible where Joshua, uh, Joshua and his armies on the Lord's command march around the city of Jericho until the walls fall down. And I spoke about how one of the reasons that that victory was achieved is because Joshua and the Israelites trusted God with the victory. They trusted God to fight on their behalf. 
We had a beautiful reminder as we were praying just before this service, uh, as Ian prayed, that actually that God is not tame, that God fights on behalf of his people. But a huge problem here in Isaiah, a huge problem for Isaiah, something he's very upset and concerned about, something God is angry about, is that Israel and Judah's leaders are refusing to trust God for their protection. Instead, when under threat from the big fish nearby, they form fragile alliances with other nations. They rely on other nations for help, and it doesn't really go well. Now, Isaiah was written before, during, and after one big conflict, which we're going to call the Israel-Assyrian conflict, okay? Uh, A battle between Israel and Judah and Assyria, a big nation. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that now. But as I was working out what these military movements were that I'm about to tell you about, as I was thinking of how the story unfolds, as I was planning this sermon, I just couldn't get my head around it. There were too many movements. It confused me. So I dug out some of my childhood toys, and I... uh, you're going to see what happened next, okay? I hope this helps you a little bit as well to engage with what's actually going on in the area. So the first thing we need to know, as I mentioned already, is that Israel has been divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and they don't like one another. Now, the map that was up on the screen is too complicated, so here's one that I drew myself, okay? And uh, Israel and Judah don't like one another, but Israel and Judah have a king each, okay? So the king of uh, Judah, where we find ourselves here, where Isaiah is the council, the king of Judah is named Ahaz, okay? So there's Ahaz, a little... uh, turret there to signify King Ahaz. And the northern kingdom is called Israel, the capital is Samaria, and the king of Israel is named Pekah, okay? There you go. Now, Pekah is, also happens to be the name of mine and Claire's pet hedgehog, um, and I would say that's where the similarity ends, but Pekah here is quite a, a spiky fellow as well, so, so actually, all right, actually he doesn't like Ahaz at all. He's hostile towards the southern kingdom, which is called Judah which is why he's depicted as a nasty droid, okay? Now, meanwhile, while all this is going on, while these two kings are reigning, they hear talk of an empire nearby which has existed for a long time, okay? It's called Assyria. Assyria has existed for a long time, but it had been in decline. Actually, it hadn't been doing particularly well. It hadn't been winning many victories. But they hear that it's experienced a resurgence under a king named Tiglath-Pileser. Now, Tiglath-Pileser, you don't need to remember his name, but what you do need to know about him is that he actually founded the first ever professional army, okay? The world's first professional army. The world's first army that was made up of soldiers whose job was to be soldiers. Every other army of the world at this point would have been made up of fighting men, people who had other jobs but also knew how to fight. But he's found the first professional paid army whose job is simply to fight. Imagine the strength that could come from being the first professional army. They're a force to be reckoned with. And in order to protect Israel, the northern kingdom, from Assyrian invasion, Pekah, the king of Israel, forms an alliance with Rezin, the king of Aram, okay, which is modern-day Syria. Okay, so he thinks we need to protect ourselves. Assyria is dangerous. Let's form an alliance with somebody else. So they form an alliance with Rezin, king of Aram. And then they approach Ahaz in the southern kingdom, in Judah, and they try to pressure Ahaz into joining the alliance, but Ahaz refuses. So instead, they attack Jerusalem. Okay, so Israel and Aram attack Jerusalem. And Ahaz, for clear, obvious reasons, panics, because suddenly his enemy with somebody else he's allied with are at his gates, and they want to take out him and his city. 
Ahaz panics. And Isaiah, who is, a, who is a counsel, he's an advisor to the king, turns up and advises Ahaz to ask God for help. Okay? Now the people of... This is worlds colliding, okay? Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, that's Gandalf. Um, so, uh, it's actually Isaiah. It's actually Isaiah. So he counsels him. He says, turn to God for help. And it's not like Israel and Judah had a poor history with God helping them. They had a rich history of God helping them. This is God who'd led their people out of slavery in Egypt, who delivered them into the promised land, who toppled the walls of Jericho, who'd led them through the Red Sea and later the Jordan on dry land. They had an incredible history of God coming to their aid. And Isaiah comes, and you don't get all of this in the book, but you can imagine Isaiah saying, look, remember that God did that for us? And remember that he did that for us, and that, and that? Well, ask him for help now. In fact, Isaiah tells Ahaz this. He says, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those two smoldering stubs of firewood, referring to the two kings who are attacking him. He says, they are smoldering stubs of firewood. They're soon going to burn out. Don't be afraid of them. Ask God for help. But Ahaz thinks he has a better idea. What do you do? I want to posit this question to you. What do you do if... You're getting bullied at school. What do you do? Okay, you have options, don't you? You have options. You can, you can do the right thing, which is go and speak to an adult, a teacher, you know, go and get some help with this issue. Or you can do nothing. Or you can make friends with someone bigger than the bully, right? Actually, this is not the way to go about it at all. And yet that is one of your options. And Ahaz does exactly this. He ignores Isaiah's advice and he tries to ally with Assyria. 2 Kings chapter 16 Verse 7 says this. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and said, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Essentially what Ahaz does is he panics and falls at the feet of the king of Assyria and essentially just sort of licks his boots and says, I will do anything if you'll protect me from these people who are attacking me. But that comes at a cost. Actually, it goes on to say in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 8, the next verse, Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. It comes at a financial cost. He has to tear all the gold and silver out of Judah and give it to this king in order to buy his help. Okay, and it comes at a spiritual cost. Because where does he strip the gold and silver from? From the temple of the Lord. Worship of the one true God is already on its knees. It's already breaking apart in the kingdom of Judah, and Ahaz makes it significantly worse. In, uh, in the, the end of that chapter, in 2 Kings 16, it says that Ahaz strips everything out of God's temple and gives it to the king of Assyria and actually starts setting up altars to Assyrian gods instead. If history has taught us anything, it's that giving greedy warmongers what they want is not something that ever works out for the best. If there's ever one British Prime Minister who discovered this, his name is Neville Chamberlain, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't work. But it does solve Ahaz's immediate problem. 2 Kings 16.9 says, uh, says, the king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kir and put Rezin to death. So he attacks Aram, who Israel had allied with, <laughs> drives them away. Knocks them out of the game. He solved Ahaz's immediate problem because Judah, suddenly, uh, sorry, Israel, finding itself without an ally, backs off. 
But by ignoring Isaiah's advice to turn to God and, and by trying to fix the problem himself, Ahaz has actually made matters significantly worse, which we're about to find out. Now, Ahaz doesn't experience any kind of invasion in Judah in his own lifetime. Ahaz actually dies and is succeeded by his son Hezekiah after several years have passed. And Hezekiah, compared to his father Ahaz, is an excellent king. He goes about undoing all of the wrong his father Ahaz had done. He's a breath of fresh air, to be honest with you. And in 2 Kings 18, it says this about Hezekiah. It says... uh, says, Where is it? There we go. Uh, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. In other words, he, he starts destroying all of these places of pagan worship and starts restoring places of worshiping God. It says this, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses. Hezekiah is a breath of fresh air after his father Ahaz. Begins to root out pagan worship and gently, well, gently isn't the right word, and and try to drag people back towards worshipping God. But it's a bit too late, and people don't respond to it. People don't repent. And at this point, in Isaiah chapter 8, is where we find ourselves here, Isaiah uh, has a son, okay? Isaiah has a son, and he prophesies that before his son can speak, that Samaria, the capital of Israel, will have fallen to Assyria. And he then prophesies, a few verses later, that Assyria will then attack Judah. And sure enough, a few years later, Assyria attacks Israel, the northern kingdom, and completely destroys Samaria. They carry off the Israelites that they don't kill into exile. Judah finds itself with with one enemy less. And I guess that's a good thing, except they begin to realize that the Assyrians are hungry for more. They are hungry for more conquest. Isaiah knows that despite the fact that Samaria has been destroyed, it isn't over yet. We've looked at two battles so far, okay? The battle between Israel and Judah, which you could call a civil war. We've looked at the battle between Assyria and Israel, which was very short. And now the battle between Assyria and Judah that Isaiah had prophesied about, which Ahaz had done all he could to avoid. After the Assyrian conquest of Samaria, which we just saw, Hezekiah, the the king, seeks allegiance with another ancient superpower, and this ancient superpower is called Egypt. Remember the ones who held the Israelites in slavery? Egypt. And Isaiah is understandably furious about this. In Isaiah 31, we pick up what Isaiah thinks of this alliance. He says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. In other words, you can imagine Isaiah turning up to Hezekiah's courts and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing allying with Egypt? Sure enough, just as Isaiah had prophesied, a 
Assyria, who now has a new king called, uh, called Sennacherib, who has no intention of honouring any ancient treaty between Judah and Assyria, attacks Judah. They quickly wipe out all of the fortified cities in Judah and besiege Jerusalem. Judah's alliance with Assyria breaks down. This happens in 705 BC. And what, where are Egypt? Egypt is nowhere to be seen. Judah's alliance with Egypt breaks down two in one. Their alliances fall to pieces. And Hezekiah attempts to buy the Assyrians off. A little bit like his father Ahaz had done, getting all the gold and silver out of the temple and giving it over to the king of Assyria, saying, but, but when Ahaz did it, he was saying, please be on our side. And when Hezekiah's doing it, he's saying, please don't kill us, essentially. He tries to buy off the king, but Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is not so easily bought. He sends a messenger to uh, to. Hezekiah, and gives this incredibly arrogant speech where he says that nothing's going to stand in the way of his conquest. And in fairness to him, up to this point, nothing had stood in the way of his conquest. But he says this. He says, has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? When somebody says something like this in the Bible, it usually doesn't go well for them. But he says this, and he begins to mock Hezekiah, and he mocks the people of Jerusalem, and he mocks God. And Isaiah, just like he came to Ahaz, comes to Hezekiah and advises him once again to ask God for help. He says, look, you remember that time when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. You remember when God delivered them through the the Red Sea. You remember when God delivered us into the promised land. You remember when uh, the, uh, the Israelites under Moses were fighting a battle and when Moses lifted his hands in worship, they won, right? You remember that? Ask God for help now. And in Isaiah 37, verses 6 to 7, these are the words that Isaiah says to Hezekiah. Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. That's God speaking. Listen. When he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. In other words, trust me, and I will get rid of this threat. Turn to me, and I will get rid of this threat. I will fight on your behalf. And Hezekiah does exactly this. He's very different from his father. He falls to his knees, and he humbles himself before God in prayer, and he prays this prayer. Lord Almighty, The God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Hezekiah falls to his knees and says, God, we need your help. Please help us. And God sends an angel to drive the Assyrians away. (laughs) The Assyrians have attacked Judah. They've taken out all of, all of Judah's fortified cities and they've laid siege to Jerusalem, the capital. But they haven't conquered it. They haven't destroyed Jerusalem. And actually, this is exactly what Isaiah had prophesied. In Isaiah chapter 10, 
Isaiah said this, and this is before anything's happened with Assyria. He says this, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. Remember, this is God speaking through Isaiah. In whose hands is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Yes, God used the Assyrians to punish Judah, but he didn't allow the Assyrians to get what they wanted, conquest. He drove them off and allowed Jerusalem to continue to stand. Now, despite Isaiah's warnings, the people of Judah don't, throughout this process, repent and turn back to God. Nor do they rely on God for deliverance. And instead, they form fragile alliances with pagan nations, which lead to them either being let down or stabbed in the back. And the only time they actually receive protection, the protection they need, is when Hezekiah finally falls to his knees and asks God for help. But the story isn't over. We're going to look at Isaiah chapters 1 to 39. And we're going to see in chapter 39, and it really makes you just despair, and you start thinking, oh, for goodness sake, when we're told that Hezekiah, who's shaken from the near miss that was the Assyrian invasion, looks to make another alliance to protect himself against future invasions. He invites emissaries, visitors from another big military superpower to Jerusalem. He shows them all of Jerusalem's riches and in an an attempt to win them over. And he says, look, you really want to be friends with us. And that nation is called Babylon. 150 years later, Jerusalem is attacked by the Babylonians and this time it's destroyed and the people are exiled. You just get this impression at the end of Isaiah 39 that it's all about to repeat itself. Come on, Hezekiah. The kings of Israel had several strengths, okay, but learning from their mistakes wasn't one and they simply just don't seem to learn that what they need to do is depend on God, but they're not alone in that. Isaiah's message, I want to I speak now. We've covered judgment, okay? You can't study Isaiah without knowing about God's judgment and taking God's judgment seriously. But Isaiah is as much a message of hope as it is a message of judgment. Isaiah's message is bleak and sobering. God promises to punish a rebellious nation for their sin, and he delivers on that promise. God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. This is who God is. But when Hezekiah finally turns to God and humbles himself, God delivers on his promise to bless those who repent. Which means that while God does not allow sin to go unpunished, God does not allow obedience and repentance to go unrewarded either. Despite its motif of judgment, Isaiah is a prophetic text full of hope. And it's full of hope specifically for those who repent and turn to God. I've spoken about repentance a lot. It's a very Christian word. Repentance is when you're going in one direction and you turn and walk in the other direction. It's about leaving one lifestyle behind for another. It's about leaving one, uh, one faith behind, perhaps a faith in ourselves or a faith in the world, and turning to faith in God. It's what repentance is about. God called the people of Israel and Judah to repent and return to his covenant promises with them, to obey his law and to trust him to protect them. And today God calls us to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus Christ and put our faith in him, trust in him for our deliverance. Over the next few weeks, we are going to look at some of Isaiah's texts of hope. And I want to just introduce you just briefly to what these texts of hope are going to be about. By telling you about three promises that God makes through Isaiah. Three things God promises to send or promises to establish in the future. 
which form the backbone of Isaiah's message of hope. The first is that God promises that there will be a holy remnant who he allows to continue to worship him. Promises this on several occasions, the first of which is in Isaiah chapter 4. God says this, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. And God says, yes, I'm going to punish the people of Israel, but I'm not going to completely destroy them. There is going to be a remnant who I will allow to continue to be my people, to worship me. They are going to be a holy remnant. And this has, to some extent, an an immediate fulfillment or a fulfillment in the next couple of hundred years. Because as we've seen, the Assyrians don't completely wipe out Jerusalem. A remnant is allowed to continue on. Similarly, a couple of hundred years later, the Babylonians carry the people of Judah off into exile, but some are able to return to be a remnant. But neither of these remnants is actually a holy people. They rebel again. They turn from God again. Which means that the only way this promise is going to come to fulfilment is if God's holy remnant is made up of a people whom God has made holy. God promises there will be a holy remnant, a people, that God will have a people who will worship him. Second thing God promises will happen, will come, is a holy king. Israel and Judah have had mixed to no success with kings, as we've seen, and and actually Ahaz is not the worst. But God promises to send a king who will supersede all the others, who will put all the others to shame, who will rule like none of the others. And in Isaiah chapter 11, I want to read you the whole chapter, but I'm not going to. Uh, It tells you all about this king and what his reign will look like. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, which simply means that this king will uh, be born in the line of Judah. Okay, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Isaiah 11 speaks of this coming king who loves justice, who doesn't seek his own, uh, his own fulfillment, his own wealth, who uh, raises up the poor, who brings peace and moves in the power of God's spirit. And that is a king I would be fine being a subject of. And Isaiah prophesies that this king is going to come. This king is a future reality, a future promise. But when, when Judah returns from the Babylonian exile, several kings sit on the thrones of Judah, but... None of them fits this description. None of them fits this description of a king who loves justice and doesn't seek himself, but seeks to raise up the poor and bring peace and move in the power of God's spirit, which means there's going to need to be something special about this holy king, something different. A holy remnant, a holy king, and finally, a holy kingdom. Isaiah promises that the old Jerusalem will be destroyed, but that God will bring about a new Jerusalem, which will endure forever. This new kingdom of Jerusalem will be made up of God's worshippers 
those who have repented and turned to God, those in whom God's spirit lives. This new Jerusalem will be a source of peace, a source of justice and a source of blessing for all nations. In Genesis 12, when God first elected Abraham, the, f- the founding father of the, of, kind of the people of Israel from years before, he promised that, God promised that he would bless all the nations through this one nation. But after the Babylonian exile, Israel comes back to Jerusalem, but they remain closed off to the rest of the world. Jews and Gentiles don't mix. They're not being a blessing to all nations, which means that this holy kingdom needs something else to be established. Well, it can't be established until its king comes. But when? When is all this going to happen? Isaiah makes all these prophecies and these promises, and we see some of them come true, particularly the historical events And hundreds of years pass, and people are reading Isaiah and thinking, when is all this going to happen? But Isaiah prophesies in chapter 7 that all of this will begin, all of this will be triggered by a sign that God will send. And the sign is this, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Isaiah says all of this is going to kick off. All of this is going to start when a child is born of a virgin in the line of David, the tribe of Judah, of which Jesus' adoptive father Joseph was a part. He was in the line of Judah. Says that he, this king, this baby who will grow up to be a man, this, this one will be the one to call the holy remnant, God's holy people, to repentance. He will be the one who actually makes them holy. He will be the one who grants them access to the holy kingdom. He will be the one who rules in justice, peace, and righteousness. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He's otherwise known as Jesus Christ. And I just want to finish by saying that if you follow Jesus today, then these promises are beautiful news for you. Isaiah is not an old, irrelevant text. It's not, uh, it's not an alien language. It's something that contains beautiful promises for us as Jesus' followers today. We, the church, are among that holy remnant. Those of us, when we've repented of our sin and we turn to Christ, through whom we are made God's people, God's children. We, this holy remnant, are gathered together by the holy king who laid down his life for his subjects, only to raise it back up again and raise us to eternal life. Isaiah shows us that God cannot let sin go unpunished, but the story of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, shows us that he has made us holy by taking the punishment for our sin. We are citizens of the holy kingdom of God with passports purchased by the blood of Jesus. The kingdom is the new Jerusalem, and the kingdom is our destination after this life is done. Isaiah uses a Hebrew word, kados, which means holy, more than the rest of the Old Testament combined. In this preaching series, we are going to be called to reflect on the holiness of God. The book of Isaiah causes us to take God's holy judgment seriously. It calls us to repentance, to belief in Christ, who makes us holy. And it instills within us the hope of being a holy remnant, worshipping a holy king in a holy kingdom. I'm very excited to study this book. Um, It's going to be awesome. Yeah, let me pray to finish. Lord God, I thank you for the prophet Isaiah. I thank you for his obedience, that he preached a difficult message to a difficult people. 
I thank you that this book causes us to take your judgment seriously. But I thank you that through Jesus we can be saved from that judgment and we can have eternal life as a gift instead. I thank you that. Lord. I guess I want to pray that um, in the many texts that we study in this, in this series as we learn more about Isaiah and how Isaiah relates to us, I pray that every time you would lead us to the cross. Lead us to the cross where Jesus died and paid the price for our sin so that we might gain access to a kingdom where we can worship you for eternity. Praise you, God. Amen.